Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Margaret Somerville. She's a professor of bioethics uh, in the School of Medicine in Sydney. And we're going to talk about uh, various issues in bioethics. So, Margaret, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure, Richard. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your history. Why uh, is bioethics important to you and how did you uh, start working on it? Well, it was sort of an accident that I got into it. When I left school, I wanted to do law, but my parents didn't want me to do that. They wanted me to do pharmacy, which I did. And I'm glad now that I did. And I, I graduated from Adelaide University, qualified in that. And then I got married and then uh, I decided I really didn't want to be a pharmacist for the rest of my life. So I went back to university, this time in Sydney, and I did law. And uh, then, I, you know, I saw my future as being as a lawyer, actually. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved law. I described it as being like a rabbit that fell in a lettuce patch, you know. It was sort of, I liked everything that I learned. And then what happened was, because I was married and my former husband wanted to do overseas training, he was a doctor, a nephrologist, kidney specialist, and he said, well, you know, I want to go to Montreal for a year of postgraduate research. And I very reluctantly said, okay, I'll go with you, but only for a year. And when I, I, I thought I might as well do something useful while I was there, so I decided to put my two qualifications, my healthcare qualification and my law qualification together by doing a master's degree in medical law at McGill University. But unknown to me, um, one of the very few academics in the world was at McGill and he thought I'd chosen to come there just because of him, which I didn't even know about him. But anyway, he said to me, you shouldn't be doing a master's, you should be doing a doctorate. So I ended up doing a doctorate in uh, law, medicine and ethics. And it was right at the time that uh, the issues in bi- what we would now call bioethics, there was no such field then, I'm talking 1975, were just starting to explode. And the first big one was organ transplants and particularly heart transplants. I mean, everybody fell around in a heap about You know, there was somebody with what was regarded as a symbol of you were either alive or dead, depending on whether your heart was beating or not. And there was someone alive walking around with the beating heart of the dead person. And so all sorts of issues started to arise. 
And then we got, in 1978, we had Louise Brown, the first test tube baby. So that threw up the whole reproductive technology issues. And then we went on from there, right into genetics and genomics and all of the things that have exploded since. And some of the old issues like euthanasia and abortion and uh, things about uh, children's rights. Do they have a right to be born from natural biological origins? Or would it be acceptable to create an artificial sperm or an artificial ovum, an egg? Uh, all of the things that we now struggle with. And of course, right now on our whole doorstep is all of the ethical issues raised by COVID-19. So it was as though the field exploded under me. I was one of not very many people in the world who'd done research work on these sorts of issues and teaching of these sorts of issues. And um, so I kind of just went ahead with what opened before me. In terms of uh, bioethical issues, there's ones that the technology is here and there's a possibility to use them and we're confronted with that. And then there's ones that are likely or somewhat likely to happen in the future, but aren't yet possible. So do you think it's important to focus on both or more focus on stuff that's already here? I think both, Richard. I don't think it's an either or. And what I think is that what we do about the ones that are already here will have a major impact on what we do about the ones that we face in the future. And essentially what we're dealing with are people like me who would be called conservative or more traditional. I urge caution and people who just want to go ahead and see what happens, who call themselves progressives uh, and whom I criticize. Sometimes, I mean, look, sometimes all of us are right and sometimes all of us are wrong. But the progressives, uh, I believe, have got a sort of a mantra of control. They want to control the natural. They want choice. It's up to the, and usually it's individuals that should be allowed to choose whatever they want. And so if, if you looked at reproductive technology, for instance, uh, this idea of absolute reproductive freedom, which one of my colleagues who sadly is an American colleague, actually, John Robertson, who was professor of uh, bioethics at, uh, in Texas. And, you know, he used to advocate for absolute reproductive freedom. And then they also want choice. They also want change. And they assume, they, they base their approach on idea that change is always for the good. And I would challenge that because I think sometimes change is not for the good. And so in some areas, I would be more traditional values based and people who are much more progressive values, what they call progressive values, which I would dispute, they would go for change and not sort of reticence such as I might advocate. If you're, if you're progressive in the wrong direction, that's actually a, a negative thing. So to just say blanket, I'm not saying you're saying it, but you know that label seems to say that everything they do is in the right direction, but not necessarily. Progressive may make, you know, again, it may well, be in the wrong direction. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying, that change is not always for the better and we have to be very careful. And, you know, it's interesting because we live in what is called, I'm here in Australia, you're in the US, and we've got what are basically open legal systems. And what open legal systems means that everything that is not prohibited is permitted whereas a closed legal system, which some countries have, is that everything that is not permitted is prohibited. And we've got a few exceptions to our open legal system, and one of them is in regard to the environment and the precautionary principle, because what the precautionary principle does is put in a limited area of a closed legal system. It says, until you can show that this is reasonably safe, you must not do it. And so our drug approval system, for example, is a precautionary principle system. It makes it a closed legal system. You cannot put a new drug or a new vaccine on the market until you've shown that it's reasonably safe and effective. And the other big area where that's now becoming true is where you need environmental impact clearance before you can do whatever it is that you're going to do, chop down the trees or put in a new airport or whatever it is, you have to show this is reasonably safe before, in terms of not damaging the environment before you will get permission to do it. Yeah, the same thing's happening with COVID. Now the assumption yeah. is, oh, you need to be careful and you, you have no rights unless, uh, you know, so-and-so determines that you can do these things that before were, were totally fine. Exactly. And there's a lot of dispute about that because, you know, people say, and there are some exceptions. So, for instance, the last hope type of approach, which if you've got somebody who's dying of some disease and there's no treatment that you can offer them, but there's some treatment that's not yet approved, there's a big argument about whether the person should be allowed to have access to that. And indeed, I've been involved in situations where that was what was being looked at because I worked as well with a hospital, one of the McGill University hospitals in Montreal. And sometimes you'd have people in, I know in the case I was involved in, someone was in intensive care, they were really going to die and there was nothing that could be do, done. And the person and their family wanted to try a way out experimental treatment and the hospital was very nervous about allowing that. Partly it was nervous because it thought it might end up being liable or it was breaking the law if it allowed this. So you can get, those are all the kinds of ethical issues that you deal with in a healthcare setting from, I often talk about it as having four levels of decision-making. You've got the micro or the individual person, and usually their relationship with the doctor or the nurse or whatever. Then you've got the meso or institutional level, that is what the ethics guiding the hospital, for instance, or as has been very prominent in the COVID uh, situation, what about aged care homes and nursing homes? 
Then you've got the macro or societal level, which is what are the ethics guiding a government when it decides what laws to bring in? For instance, the lockdown laws here in Australia, where people were put within, they weren't allowed to go outside except for an hour of individual exercise. They shut down the shops and the hotels and whatever. So that's your government public policy, health policy ethics level. And then these days, and COVID is a really good example of this, we've got the mega or global level. What do we owe to other countries, to other people, especially those who are more vulnerable and worse off than we are? And unfortunately, actually, I think that's true of the United States at the moment. So what do you do when there's conflict between the values at those levels. In ethics, we sometimes call that a world of competing sorrows. There is no harm option. And your decision is, who will you harm? And that's a very difficult decision. It's easy when you think you're only doing good. But very often, you're not just only doing good. Uh, you're also doing harm. And in fact, in human rights law, there's an old saying that says, nowhere are human rights more threatened than we when we act purporting to do only good. Because then what happens is we often don't see the harm that is unavoidably also involved in the good that we want to do. doesn't mean we're prohibited from doing it. It does mean that we have to consider the harm and we have to be able to justify it. That's what ethics is about, trying to justify the actions that we take that do both good and harm. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, in regards to COVID, that's exactly the situation. It's a complete lopsided treatment. <clears throat> All the negative effects are completely ignored in response to uh, the threat of COVID. People can't go for medical treatments, cancer, births, whatever it is. They're locked up. Suicide rates are up. People are miserable, out of work can't live and all that, but all that's okay just for this one purpose. So it's incredibly lopsided to me. Well, you know, you know the situation, Richard, much better in the US than I do. But here in Australia, uh, we did have those restrictions and it's been so far, and you know, all I can say is touch wood, it's been remarkably effective. Apart from Victoria, where there was a big outbreak because they didn't have enough restriction, which is now seems to be well under control. They've had 13, I just heard about half an hour ago, they've now had 13 straight days with no infections and no deaths. And they had uh, something like 819 deaths before they did the lockdown. The whole of the rest of Australia has had less than 100 deaths. And the infection rate at the moment is uh, it's a, something like two or three cases a day in the whole country. 
And a lot of those are uh, returning overseas travellers and they have to go into quarantine for uh, 14 days. So they're not in the community, but the uh, spread in the community is absolutely minimal. And when I see the figures in the US, I mean, it's really uh, tragic. And the same in the UK, it's not just the US. And you know, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when I heard Anthony Fauci say there'll be over 200,000 deaths, I couldn't believe it. I thought, no, he's got to be way out. That can't be right. But you know, it is, it was right. And um, I think, you know, I think he's, made remarkable pleas that unfortunately haven't been implemented or listened to. So what do you think are some of the um, the vital ethical issues today? I mean, you know, we're discussing one with COVID and the response. Uh, what other issues do you think are, are incredibly important right now? Uh, I think that they're one field where they're very important is in reproductive technology. I mean, what we're now, you asked me about future possibilities and was, a, you know, were some of those of ethical concern? Yes, in plus, 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 plus they are. So, for instance, um, I mean, they sound so way out that you, you can hardly believe some of them. But one of the ones that I think is going to be very difficult is... Um, alteration of the human germline or the genome. There, there are genes that are passed on from generation to generation. And up until 2015, we could never have interfered with those genes. The, the future or the human that was conceived got the genes that came half from its mother and half from its father, approximately, probably a few more from its mother. But um, now we can go in and we can alter those genes with CRISPR-Cas9 technology or some of the later developments of that. And you can chop out genes and you can put in genes. And the arguments for being allowed to do that are very strong because what the people who want to do this say is that we're only doing good. We're going to cut out genes for horrible diseases. The problem is we don't really know the wider effects of that. That's one of the physical problems. The other problems are what I would call the existential or metaphysical problems. What does it mean that we're designing a human being? Is that, and some of the thoughts around this are can that person be really free? Because if they're, they're predetermined by the way we've designed them, is that going to alter our sense of ourself and our liberty? And also, can that, is that person equal to undesigned persons? And in particular, is the, is the designed person equal to the designer? Because normally we think that the designer is has more value than the designed product? And does it make the child into a product that the person wants rather than uh, an amazing, unique, actually unique except for genetically identical twins, uh, human being? So 
those are just sort of like basic problems, although enormously important. There was a conference in Atlanta in 2015, which I had uh, the privilege of being invited to. It was an invitation conference. And Steven Pinker from Harvard, you probably know him. He's the professor of psychology there. He and I got into a, an argument because Stephen thought that, you know, we should be allowed to do this because it was only for good that we were doing it. And I disagreed for a whole lot of reasons. And Stephen went on to write an op-ed, I, I believe it was in the New York Times, to say that if the bioethicists want to prohibit us from doing this, we shouldn't fail to do it. We should get rid of the bioethicists. I actually thought that was very clever, but I have no intention of being gotten rid of. So, and then you move on in the reproductive technology area, like what's called ectogenesis. That is, we'll have artificial wombs or uteruses so that the, a woman won't have to carry the baby. It'll be, gen, it'll be brought to birth, I guess you can call it birth, uh, in an artificial environment. When Dolly was created, Dolly, the first cloned mammal. I happened to be at Oxford at the time and Alan Trouncen, who's a very well-known Australian scientist who was a friend of mine, I was talking to him about what did this mean. And Alan said to me, if you want to know what we're going to do in humans, Margot, he said, look at what we're doing now in animals and in seven years' time, that will be what we're doing in humans. And he's largely proven to be right. It's a separate question, though, whether we should be doing that as compared with can we do it. Just because we can do it doesn't mean that we should do it. But anyway, with regard to ectogenesis, scientists have already brought lambs up to a certain point of development in artificial uteruses. And I think about what Alan said and think, oh gosh, that's going to be the next thing with humans. And then there's talk, for example, in Sweden, and this would be much more uh, basic really in terms of the science of transplanting a uterus to a man who wants to carry a baby. And um, I've actually, in the past, I've had men contact me and tell me that's what they'd like to do and can they get uh, that done somewhere. You know, so that's another thing that we can think about. I mean, and then perhaps most, I feel most worrying of all is creating artificial sperm or artificial ova so that for instance, a same-sex couple can have a shared genetic baby. And um, so where you've got same-sex marriage legalized, then that carries the right to found a family. That's part of the, for example, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And already we're seeing cases in Canada where there's a prohibition on paid surrogate motherhood and gay couples are challenging that as unconstitutional because they say they can only exercise their right to found a family if they can hire a surrogate mother. So these are the sorts of things that are opening up. Yeah, I mean, each issue is, 
is very contentious. I guess you don't, uh, you know, for a long time you haven't minded like wading into the fray and, you know, uh, having these discussions. What, what's it been like? Like, is there a, um, I don't know. I mean, are some of the discussions very controversial, but yet they don't seem to be. Um, and some that don't seem to be controversial, <laughs> they, but they, yet to be incredibly controversial. Richard, I had to have bodyguards. I had a security. Somebody described it as a kidnap-proof car. I got booked into hotels under another name. And, you know, I said, and it was all because I said that I believed that a child had a right to a mother and a father, if at all possible, their own genetic parents, their own biological parents, and it included a right to come from natural human origins. Now, 20 years ago, and perhaps even 10 years ago, that would not have been a controversial statement. Everybody would have gone, ho-hum, uh-huh, you know, what are you talking about? Why is it even necessary to say that? And today, all of that is under challenge. Wow, I didn't know it got that crazy for you, huh? What, what issue uh, seemed to drum up the most hatred for you? Same-sex marriage oh, okay. by Miles. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, people, you know, I, I gave the Massey Lectures in Canada, which is the main public lecture series that the country has every year. You write a book and then you give five lectures across the country in different cities. And, uh, you know, that we had to have security and there was a lot of concern about it. And then I got offered um, an honor, one of the honorary degrees I have. One was offered by Ryerson University in Toronto. And uh, there was huge protests and it ended up on the front page of the national newspaper, the Globe and Mail, and the Globe and Mail wrote a full half-page editorial on a Saturday morning, which is the most read edition of the Globe and Mail. And it was all about the uh, gay lobby was, uh, or the LGBTQI plus lobby was... Um, trying to prevent the university from giving me the degree. And the president of the university put out a statement that said, if we'd known what she really was like, we wouldn't have done it, but it's too late now. And, I mean, you imagine, <laughs> you imagine going and getting an honorary degree from somebody who said, you know, we wish we hadn't done, didn't have to do this. And... Um, and anyway, they uh, they had all sorts of security provisions and that. And um, the people, probably about a third of the academic staff, when the degree was actually conferred, when the president put the ceremonial hood over my head, they stood and turned their backs to me and unfurled rainbow flags and wrapped themselves, this is up on the stage, wrapped themselves in the rainbow flags. And then I went to walk across to the podium to give the convocation speech. And the most amazing thing happened. I think there were several thousand people in the auditorium. It was big. There were 300 and something graduates and all their families were there. Anyway, what happened was the whole audience, I'm sure there must have been a few who didn't, rose to their feet and just clapped and clapped and clapped. And I don't think they necessarily at 
all supported what I had said, but I think what they did support, and I think this is a very big issue, is the right of academics and probably and everyone to say respectfully what they truly believe. And, you know, our democracy yeah. depends on that. It's really important, very important. So... That's, you know, I know there's a lot of concern in American academia about that at the moment, about this woke speech that, you know, you can't say certain things. Universities have to be regarded as what I call a secular, sacred space that people must, who are within them, must speak respectfully. They must have moral regret if what they think they have to say because of ethics and know that that hurts other people. That's what I thought about same-sex marriage. I didn't want to hurt uh, people who were gay. I didn't want it to be a negative to them. And I hate, you know, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But I saw a conflict between giving uh, gay couples the right to found a family and children's rights to their natural origins and being brought up by a mother and a father. And why I chose children in that conflict is that there's a principle in ethics that when you can't honour everybody's claims, you must try to honour the claims of the most vulnerable, most in need, weakest members and compared with adults and children. And one of the things that I think, and this is an everyday issue, that IVF clinics around the world, in vitro fertilisation, they never put the child at the centre of the decision-making. They put the adults who are making those decisions. And, and you know, the so-called fertility industry is a billions of dollars industry and it's commercially promoted everywhere and not that it doesn't do some good it does but i think we've got to be a lot more careful you know after you were attacked essentially or yeah. censored or whatever you want to call it the first time probably yeah. that was the biggest shock the biggest shock but after it happened four or five ten twenty times over years how did it change you how do you feel now do you feel emboldened i'm going to speak you know no matter what or do you feel um hampered by it or restrained in what you say and do? Like, how have you reacted to this? I have faith that people who genuinely believe, you know, what their values are, they have got the right to express those values, and that is whether or not those values are the same ones as mine. As a matter of fact, I've just written a paper, which is out for second review, and it's called, Could the Wonder Equation Help Us to Be More Ethical? And in it, I've decided that maybe the more traditional or conservative values people have made a mistake in always kind of wagging their fingers and saying you're wrong and you shouldn't do this, and that we've got to find where we can find more mutual agreement and cooperation. And a good example of it is if you look at the feminist, uh, the sort of more the stringent feminist movement, and you look at the 
fairly very conservative values people then what you've got is for on abortion very conservative values people will say no abortion should be allowed at all the most of them say except to save the mother's life or a serious risk to her health and on the feminist the strong feminist side you see there should be no restrictions on abortion at all and in fact that's the situation in Canada theoretically if you could get a doctor to do it. You can have an abortion the day before you give birth. That would not be illegal. I think, so there you can see there's a huge gap and a conflict and both sides yell at each other. On the other hand, if you move to surrogate motherhood, the strong feminists are very anti-surrogate motherhood and so are the conservatives. So on that issue, they can share the values and they can promote what they believe should be the governing values. And I describe that as an experience of belonging to the same moral universe. And I think what that can do is give you the idea that although we disagree on some values, we might agree on others and we can gradually build up those experiences. And what I mean by this wonder equation is that if we look at what the new science reveals with amazement, wonder and awe, if we see it as showing us the miracle of life that, you know, all living beings are made up of four nucleotides uh, and how, and we look into what I call deep outer space with astrophysics and deep inner space with genetics and genomics and see how the spectrum of our knowledge has increased so much in the last 50 years then we can say that the more that we know, the more that we don't know. And the Japanese put this as the radius of knowledge expands, the circumference of ignorance increases. And I believe we should stand in amazement, wonder and awe at that huge unknown. And then I think we will make different decisions about what we want to do with our science on the basis of ethics as compared with the decisions we would make if we thought that we will uh, be able to understand everything, that eventually science will expose everything. So, you know, it's a different attitude. So what I recommend is this, that amazement, wonder and awe, plus scepticism, we've got to be sceptical, minus cynicism and minus nihilism can give rise to gratitude, and I think we've got a distinct lack of that in our society at the moment, uh, plus hope. I believe that hope is the oxygen of the human spirit. Without it, our spirit dies. With it, we can overcome even seemingly insurmountable obstacles, and that will lead us to more ethical decisions. Now, <laughs> James Watson, I'm sure you probably, you know, he and Professor James Watson, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA, I was at a small colloquium in Oxford uh, that he and Richard Dawkins were at and Richard and I got into a, you know, more sort of an argument really about what to do with some of the new science. 
Richard, Richard believes that, you know, religion is total nonsense and also that science will eventually be able to explain everything. So I don't agree with him on either count. But yeah, his, his uh, tolerance the, for other views is, is also zero, too. <laughs> oh, is it? Anyway. From what, from what, what you've seen publicly, it? yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, we're sitting around an oval table and there was a very, very English sort of Sir Nigel something or other chairing the meeting. And Richard was at one end and I was with James, actually, with Jim Watson, and I was at the other end. And the people on each side, there are only about 30 people. It was an international meeting and we were all invited individually. Anyway, the people on each side, their, their heads were going back and forth like watching a tennis match, you know, the ball goes one end and then it comes back. And so anyway, and the, and the chair person, chairman said, oh, 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 he said, I really think we're getting very heated. I think we should have a break. And with that, you know, everybody and, and get a coffee. Anyway, so they all got up to leave and uh, Jim Watson came up behind me and he put his arm around my shoulders and he said, you know, the problem with you, Margot, is you're full of mystical nonsense. And um, I later sent that comment to Father Ron Rollheiser, who's a priest, an American priest, who a lot of people follow his writing. And he wrote back to me and he said, oh, Margot, the problem with Professor Watson and Professor Dawkins is they're mystically tone deaf. And I thought, well, that's possible. I think that's true. And... Um, there's new neurological research coming out about how we make decisions and in particular about how we make decisions about ethics. And what it's showing is that what I would call uh, our other ways of human knowing, imagination, memory, uh, intuition, especially moral intuition, common sense, uh, what we might call wisdom, all, and there's more, that's just some of them, that they are actually primary decision-making mechanisms. And I think we know that. We've always known that. And then what we do is we use reason to verify the decision we've come to on those other grounds. And so I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I'm, this is all tentative and um, I'm sort of, what I'm doing at the moment is just opening this up for people to, who know a lot more and are much more skilled than I am in working this out, this kind of thing, uh, to look into it. Because I think we are, in a funny way, we're in danger. This talk, this talk at the moment, I think it might have been the president-elect, Joe Biden, who said America has lost its soul. And I think those are the things through which we find soul. And by sharing that with others, we, we augment and protect that soul. Uh, and it doesn't mean you have to be religious. You can have all of this without being religious at all. For some people, it's through religion. For others, it's not. And yeah. I write quite a lot about that, too, that we all need these things, whoever we are. Well, excellent. Um, Margaret, what's the best way for people to find out more about, you know, your stances on issues and about issues they're not even aware of that, uh, you know, people may want to think about and consider and contribute to? Uh, 
Well, they can go on, you know, you can look me up on the web, on the net. Um, and uh, these days, that's what a lot of people do. There is also a website on which I uh, publish a lot of short pieces meant for the general public. One of my commitments is to inform, I think it is a primary obligation of academics to inform the general public in a way in which they can understand what the academics are talking about, consider what they're saying and see if, whether or not they agree with it. And that website is www.mercatornet, M-E-R-C-A-T-O-R-N-E-T.com. And it's, it's an international, uh, based here in Australia, actually, but it, it's read internationally. Um, and uh, as well, I've written four books and hundreds of articles. Um, the My latest, I guess my Massey Lectures, that would, which is called uh, The Ethical Imagination, Journeys of the Human Spirit, and that was meant for the general public. And uh, I think that one of the obligations of uh, academics, but particularly ethicists who are public intellectuals, is to give people the words they need to say what they believe. I very frequently have people coming up to me after I give a lecture to say, I knew what I believed, but I didn't know how to say it. And I think that's part of our job, to give people that. And I think if there's one thing I would promote to everybody, wherever they stand on these values, which are very sensitive issues, it is we must have mutual respect. And unless respect is mutual, it doesn't exist at all. So that is a really important thing we have to do. And I'm worried about our politics because it is so confrontational and we've got to get past that, you know. Every time you hear a politician of one party say something, you hear the guy on the other side say exactly the opposite and say it's wrong, you know, and we, we shouldn't have to govern ourselves by showing how much we can put down the other side. We should govern ourselves by saying, let's find some consensus. That's you know, true. democracy yeah. depends on that. I guess yeah. the other thing I would add, I've got a lot of warnings, but one of the other things that I would add is uh, you can't assume that just because a majority votes for something that whatever it is they voted for is ethical. You must not do that. Sometimes it's the minority voice which has got the right approach. And, again, I write about this, and I've written about that in this new paper if it gets published. I think um, I, the first reviewers sort of went, phew, you know, what is she writing about? And they had some very good comments, and they said I had to ground it, that you couldn't understand it unless you knew where I was coming from. So I had to set out some of my early history, as I did for you at the beginning of this talk, um, because it's hard to understand where I come from um, unless you can understand some of my uh, 
early experiences. I mean, my father was a very big influence in teaching us the wonders of the night sky. And I think I actually have a theory that unless as a young, very young child, you get opened up to wonder, uh, you might not be able to find it yourself later on. Mm. Well, very good. Margaret, it's been really great to talk to you. And uh, I'm glad that, uh, again, you're, you know, it's like someone working at hospice. It's not something I would want to do, but thank God there are people that do it. And same with bioethics. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're, you're willing to, uh, you know, play in the mud with these issues. And uh, they're just incredibly difficult. So thank you for all you do. What's a, a good way for, for people to follow up and to learn more from you and hear what you're thinking? Oh, I think go on, uh, go to Mercatornet if they want short articles that discuss various hot topics because those are mainly written in response to whatever's currently happening in the world. And you just put okay. in my name on the Mercatornet. Uh, it's Somerville with one M, not two M's. A lot of people get that wrong and then get upset that they can't find what they're looking for. Well, very good. Margaret, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. It's nice to have a friendly interview, even if you don't agree with me, but that's, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> okay. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.